Welcome to Money MD, where the money doctors are in the house. We're giving out prescriptions for better financial health and making smart decisions with your money. We give common sense solutions to your complex problems. And now, here are the doctors. Well, Matthew, it's been a little while since you and I have been on the, the show together. On the air, yeah, yes. finally. Yeah, we've uh, we've had a busy fall, and particularly you, right? three <laughs> weeks you. after. Yeah, yeah. You, uh, you were involved greatly in the, marriage, bit, in the yeah. wedding as well. Yeah, Matthew got married on the 14th of October, so yeah, a couple so weeks in now. Just, so. just just close to a month at this point. Yeah, it's awesome, and a good, good time of the year. It's always fun. Uh, you know, the weather's been super. It's been, you know, a little bit warm, and we got uh, Thanksgiving coming up. Thanksgiving and um, it seems like Christmas or Thanksgiving is a little overlooked now nowadays. Just we've got Halloween that's a big first holiday. Then it seems like right after Halloween, you know, I don't know. Have, yeah. have you heard any Christmas songs? Or? Yeah, yeah starting to play on Sirius uh, XM on Channel seventy nine. So oh it's a little goodness. early for me, but I tell you a funny story. We um, I took Boomer our dog in to um, to Lowe's and Aiken. Uh, gosh, it's been three weeks ago. Uh, it was even yeah, it was before Halloween. And they had Christmas decorations up, and they had a mechanical reindeer in there. Oh and he, he went saw, crazy. He saw that mechanical reindeer, <laughs> and he didn't know what to do. So he went over there and sniffed it. And, uh, that is funny. Yeah. So in October at Lowe's, they had Christmas decorations. So um, anyway. Yeah, it is a fun fun, fun time of the it year. It is. It is. Um, so we hope everybody's doing well out there. Thanks for tuning in today. We have a, um, uh, a great show lined up today. We're going to uh, start off with an interesting topic. We, we get this question a lot. And it's, um, should I add my adult child to my bank account? And it seems like a pretty easy answer, but uh, we've got a whole segment on it today. So there's uh, there's some reasons to do it. And there's also some reasons not to do it. So we'll, we'll go into detail on that in a minute. Yeah. And the second article is talking about international stocks. And this comes from Morningstar. Um, it's basically asking why why your portfolio does, in fact, need international stocks. It makes the case for why international stocks are still good and, and quite frankly, why we as a firm still advise people to have uh, this diversification. Yeah, yeah be, be diversified. So that'll be a good topic. And um, by the way, I'm John Travis. I have an MBA in finance. I'm also a Dave Ramsey uh, certified counselor. I have um, almost, uh, almost 33 years of experience in planning for both uh, corporations and individuals. And I'm Matthew Travis. I'm uh, your son, and I'm also an advisor here at the firm, yeah. and have a CFP des- designation. Yeah, yeah. You've been here, yeah, five years. It's amazing how time flies. That's crazy. Yeah, yeah but we're excited to have you listening today. Um, we have the uh, podcast up typically Friday mornings. Uh, you can go to our website, MoneyMD.net, and um, listen to it at any time. iTunes. Uh, we have a lot of past sessions, which are interesting as well. We also have a website, uh, MoneyMD.net, that you can. You can go take a look at it. There's some really good tools out there. If you've never um, looked at it, there's a, some budgeting sheets. Uh, there's some planning worksheets, some college information out there. So go check that out. And a Facebook page, MoneyMD. Um, I think you're doing the the uh, prescription of the week this week. Mm-hmm. So um, so we're going to start off first with the uh, financial fact of the week. And Matthew, you're going to take care of that one. Yeah, and this is it's a little silly. It's not really anything to learn necessarily, but it's interesting. Um, so this is... Um, about money. A banknote can be folded 4,000 times. And it's basically saying our currency is pretty durable. Uh, the Bureau of Engraving and Printing, uh, which is a sole producer of the U.S. Uh, paper currency, says it would take 4,000 double fold, folds forward and backwards for a dollar bill to tear. And it might be because paper money isn't actually made of paper. It's a blend of 
uh, 75% cotton and 25% linen with tiny blue and red synthetic fibers um, distributed throughout the bill. So it's actually not paper. It is, yeah. it's, it's pretty durable. Like cloth. Yeah, honestly. So, you know, any, anyways, fun fact. Um, yeah. It's, it's hard to. And I think less people are using cash, right? I mean, most people are, you know, debit cards, um, you know, Apple maybe credit pay. cards. Yeah, right. There's a lot of different ways of, of paying these days. I don't think it'll ever go away, but, um, you know, those dollar bills will be around for a long time. <laughs> So be around. That's right. Yeah. So good. Uh, good financial fact. And um, so we're going to switch gears and start talking about the uh, adding a, an adult child to my bank account. We get that a lot. Um, you know, as uh, as as um, your parents' age, um, you know, having someone else to help them with the finances is always a conversation. And uh, you know, many se- seniors living alone, or maybe have lost their spouse or life partner. Uh, adding an adult child as a signer to the bank account seems like a good idea. Uh, you might be worried that if you become sick or unable to manage your own affairs, that the bills would go unpaid. And the thought of having your child take over your bank account um, can be reassuring that someone else is looking out. And in some situations, you know, you may be looking for an adult child to help monitor the account to so make sure there's no unauthorized withdrawals, maybe fraud, a lot of fraud happening out there. Um, and just just keeping tabs on what's happening um, you know, in the account and, and with the bank as well. So for some families that might work out, um, but for others, um, adding a, a, a child as an owner of the account it can be risky. And we're going to go through that here in a minute. But when you put your child on the account, they become co-owner. I mean, they own half of the account and they can write checks off of that account. They can make deposits and withdrawals without any restrictions or even having to consult you. So uh, you know, there's there's some pitfalls with it, and we do see we do see the situation work a lot of times with families because there's a lot of trust, and um, you know that's what the the kids want to do, and and they're they they handle it the right way. But there are some downsides as well. Yeah, and so the downside to adding um, someone to your accounts can be huge on a joint account, like you mentioned. Um, you know, whether it's a it's a bank or an investment account, the person you add has the same rights and ownership of the account as you do. So they're not a beneficiary, they're a joint owner, which is exactly what you said. Um, you know, they have the same link, uh, the legal consequences of this joint account can be devastating um, because like you said, they have the same rights as uh, each owner. So here's some, here's some uh, ramifications of that uh, decision. Your joint account holder can write checks or make withdrawals without limitation because it is their account as well. Your joint account holder will inherit the account upon your death, which may be different than what you intend in your last will. Uh, Any account that you hold jointly passes outside of probate, and the proceeds go directly to the other joint account holder, uh, which means that, you know, your other kids, if let's say you have multiple kids and only one child on the, you know, joint joint account, um, you may, and if you if you don't change anything, then they will be disinherited from at least that asset because it's, it goes directly to the joint holder of that account. Yeah. I mean, it can mess up the, uh, the distribution uh, wishes of, of the uh, individual. So that's a big one there. Another one is creditors of either um, owner can use the account to satisfy debt. So if the child has money problems, the account can be drained or taken by a creditor for unpaid debts. Um, your ex-son or daughter-in-law may get the account assets. If your child is in, involved in a divorce, a bank account may be listed as a uh, marital asset for splitting. Um, so adding a joint account uh, owner is, is easy, but removing them um, can certainly be a nightmare. So if your child is added to the account and you later want to remove them, 
you have to get them to agree and sign to remove them as a joint account holder. So again, this all is, you know, buried in relationships. So we do see a lot of families that come in that have really great relationships and they're very, very um, trusting of, of their, their kids. And this can work, but you need to understand that there are some pitfalls. Another one here is a joint bank account could also prevent you from obtaining Medicaid, um, you know, benefits, um, you know, if you're forced into eligibility and there could be some problems for an adult child in applying for financial aid for their college bound uh, child as well. So the bank account asset will be attributed to, to your child um, and it could be used against him or her for financial aid. So and there are, there are some downsides to this. You really got to, it really boils down to, to trust and relationships. And, and again, we do see this working um, sometimes, but you got to know what you're getting into when you do that. Yeah, that's right. So, you know, here's just an alternative to adding someone as a joint account holder. Um, you know, maybe you add your child as the power of attorney uh, to handle your financial affairs. And so with this power of attorney, you, uh, the owner, remain the owner of the account while the adult child acts as the agent to make financial decisions on your behalf. And so we'll, we'll walk through what, what this means, but essentially it's still your asset. They're, it's not their asset. They have to legally use it for, for your benefit, uh, unlike a joint account where they could use it for their benefit. That's right. That's right. And so the two types of power of attorneys, one of them is an immediate power of attorney becomes effective the moment you sign the document. It allows full access to the account. They can write checks they can withdraw funds or even close the account. But you know this allows the same authority as a joint holder without causing the account to pass outside the last will and testament. So again, as Matthew mentioned, it's still in the, um, the individual's name. It's not a co-owner type relationship. And additionally, the account uh, will not be considered a part of the, the POA's asset holdings um, to be reachable by, by creditors. So the power of attorney is pretty effective. It allows the child to come in and, and have access and help mom or dad um, manage that account. So another one is called uh, power of attorney. It's called springing power of attorney only because uh, it becomes effective when you become incapacitated or incompetent. And so um, in the, the medical event, if that occurs, that prevents you from managing your own finances. And the person um, you name will step into your shoes to pay the bills, monitor the accounts, and manage your finances. So if your health is regained, um, then you, that springing power of attorney can be, be revoked. So power of attorney is pretty powerful. We see that a lot as well. Um, to me, one of the bigger issues is, is um, when you have a child on there and you have multiple kids, you're disinheriting basically the other kids because they're not a co-owner on there. So, you know, there's ways to mitigate that. If you have other accounts, you can split them differently. Uh, power of attorney is pretty effective for most people. And that's for all the accounts too. So joint accounts can only you know happen for brokerage accounts yeah. or bank accounts, but you can't be a joint account holder for an IRA. Correct. And so the POA, the power of attorney, goes over all assets. So yeah. it's more it's more inclusive it's as well. It's yeah. broader. Yeah. 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 Very good. So um, if you have any questions on that, reach out to us. We're happy to uh, discuss that with you. And we're going to switch gears here and do the question of the week. And, and we find this, Matthew, sometimes when we meet folks and, um, the, you know, the question is, is, you know, I've been saving money my whole life, you know, consistently putting money into Roth IRAs and 401ks. And um, this person found it hard to spend now that they're in retirement. So, you know, they've built up a nest egg and now they're, they're scared to pull money out of it because they're going to run out of money. And so the question is, is do you have any suggestions for that? And, 
Yeah, we do. Um, a, a couple of them are, you know, have a budget um, that you know what you need to live on and some, you know, discretionary expenses like travel and, and gifts. And, you know, if you have family, you can, you can help them out as well. Um, but then you have to have a plan and that plan needs to um, allow you to have money the rest of your life. We go out to age 95, but that plan gives you authority to spend um, on your needs and wants. And so that, that retirement plan is really the key. You got to have that in, in place. It tells you a, a monthly number that you can take out and uh, it, it accounts for inflation. Um, but it just gives you the authority to, Hey, it's okay to spend this. You're, you're likely not going to run out of money. Um, even if you're spending the money. So just having some planning, um, activities going on both budget wise and also from a retirement standpoint. Yeah. And, and, you know, to that point, it is, it's a very understandable, I mean, it's a huge change, right? You've been yeah. saving for 30 plus years typically, and then to stop saving completely and to spend it, it's a big change. And so that retirement plan, like you're saying, it, we do see it provides people a lot of freedom. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So very good question of the week. And, um, going to our next topic here, and that is, um, international stocks and, you know, the, the stock market's an interesting place. Um, no one can predict what's going to do best next, next week or next year or next 10 years. Um, but having a little bit of perspective on, on, um, some of the history of the stock market is important. And so that's kind of what this, this article addresses. Yeah. Have you just curious, have you gotten any questions on why we're invested in international or what we believe in that? Is that a common question or do people, are they full, full force believing that we need international? Yeah. I mean, it is a fairly common question a couple of times a year. It's not, it's not as, um, it's not as often as we get it on politics. You know, mm -hmm. we get questions on politics more, I, I would say, than, than international. I think most people understand, um, when we show you know, the historical data associated with it, uh, you know, the Dave Ramsey's of the world, um, you know, as well, the teachers um, recommend being diversified yeah. and having some international because, I mean, if you go back and look at history, international outperforms the U.S. Um, about 50% of the time. Right. And, and it hasn't been that way recently. So people are, are, are no, questioning. Yeah. yeah. So uh, this is a good, good discussion on it. Yeah. And so this is an article from Morningstar um, and, it's really just asking the question, do you really need to own international stocks in your investment portfolio? Um, and so, you know, we, we see in the data, like what, what some of what you're saying, that um, the U.S. share of the global stock market has climbed to nearly 60%, which when you think about it, is really out of proportion to its 25% share of the global economy. So really the question is, why is there such a big difference? Yeah, if you go back to 2008, you know, 15 years ago, um, U.S. equities represented less than 40% of the global markets. Um, you know, of course, you know, there was a global financial crisis um, that uh, originated in the U.S. Um, and the notion that U.S. equities would dominate so thoroughly in the years to follow the crisis uh, would have been really hard to, to predict at that point. Um, but an investment in the U.S. equity market over the last 15 years would have quadrupled whereas an investment in the international markets would have only gone up about two times. Mm -hmm. So pretty big disparity between the two, the two markets. And, you know, we've, we've talked about um, some of the mega caps uh, in the U.S. in the past, the Apples, the Microsofts, uh, now NVIDIA, that have been so profitable and have grown so much. Um, you know, we've even seen companies like Tesla and, and Meta um, that only came to the market after the financial crisis uh, grow to some of the largest companies in the world. And, we really haven't seen that kind of um, 
companies outside the U.S. I mean, in Europe, the markets are still dominated uh, by some of the old economy sectors like industrials and financial services. Uh, in the U.K., they obviously had the uh, Brexit, uh, which was a setback, and Japan had some issues, and China um, you know, did see the rise of the internet giants, but they've had some issues as well recently. So when you look at the top 20 companies in the global market index, 18 of the 20 mm. are U.S. companies. It wow. really is. Uh, it, it's amazing. Yeah, it's astounding. And so, you know, when we when we think about the U.S. equity market looking high priced, top heavy, even low yielding compared to global counterparts, how are we as, I mean, honestly, how are we as a financial planning firm to recommend this sector to clients? How are we confident that this should be a piece of everyone's portfolio. Um, and so looking at the Morningstar data that this article is based on, um, you know, the U.S. market index trades at about a 60% premium to global international, to the global uh, XUS uh, index, which is the international index. Mm-hmm. Now, there's been a long premium, uh, long premium that's been outweighed, and it's justifiable to some extent. Uh, given the growth orientation of the U.S. market and the profitability of some of the top companies in the U.S., but the valuation gap has really widened dramatically in recent years. So again, if you go back 15 years, uh, this valuation gap was more like 15% compared to 60%. Uh, so a lot of performance differential that we've seen between the U.S. equities and non-U.S. equities is down to that valuation gap widening. And it's what's called a multiple expansion. And it's just, again, the valuations for US companies uh, is dramatically more than international companies, which means there's value yes. potential in these international companies. Yeah, that's right. So the the valuation, the US is, is, is more richly valued than the international. So it just says that there's potentially opportunities. No one knows. Um, you know, the U.S., of course, um, is just a single market. Uh, the U.S. market has about 1,500 stocks, whereas the uh, international markets have over 6,000 stocks across 47 markets. So, but again, the trajectory and the magnitude of the difference is really dramatic. So the top 10 companies in the U.S. market are 27% of the overall market value, and that's risen from 16% in 2008. And outside of the U.S., it's been much steadier. Um, so this has been covered by by Morningstar uh, for a long time. And, and U.S. investors who hold a market portfolio really have outsized outsized um, exposure to a small number of stocks. Mm. And and so there's something called the um, is it the um, Dynamic Seven? There's like seven stocks out there now that are driving the market performance. And it feels good when you own those seven, but when it goes in a downturn. Mm. Uh, like we saw last year, they got hammered. So, you know, there's a lot of stock-specific risk in the U.S. equities right now. Um, and so, you know, another interesting thing is that U.S. stocks are lower yielding in general um, when you compare their international counterparts. So we'll kind of look at that a little bit as well. Yeah, so the dividend yield on the U.S. market is about 1.6% compared to international of about 3.2%. Uh, so it's exactly double uh, in international it's partly down due to sector, um, you know, so the different kinds of sectors, the value sectors like financials and in, in industrials that are more heavily represented outside of the U.S. tend to be more uh, dividend rich. A lot of the tech oriented names in the U.S. markets don't even pay dividends, uh, but it's also connected to valuation because when price goes up, yield goes down. 
And it's a problem for both income investors and total return investors, um, which means what it's saying is a big chunk of the long-term returns that we get from equity markets is from reinvested dividends. And Mm -hmm. we've had this conversation with clients. Returns are made up of dividends, uh, interest, and and then capital gains. And so it's a component of the total return. Um, And so just another kind of phrasing or another angle of this that we want to examine is uh, the dollar, the U.S. dollar. How has that played an outperformance of U.S. stocks? Yeah, no matter what currency you look at, the U.S. really has has outperformed um, equities outside the U.S. um, pretty handily. And And the dollar, as they call it, King dollar, as they call it, has been has been on a long run of dominance as well. In, in 2022, the euro fell below dollar parity for the first time in 20 years, and the yen hit an all-time low against the dollar. But currency leadership, like market leadership, is cyclical. I mean, we go back and we look at you know 20 and 30 and 50 years of data, and it, it changes. And so we shouldn't assume that the dollar strength will persist. Um, that's why you want to diversify. Is sometimes the U.S. goes through these mar- goes through time and does exceptionally well, and then they'll underperform. There's something called the lost decade, which was 2000 to 2009, and the S&P 500 lost about a percent a year. Mm. And boy, if you're only in that that one asset class and you're in retirement, there's a chance you're going to run out of money. (laughs) So it's risky to be very, very narrow like that. So um, another thing that we look at is... um, you know, U.S. companies um, do have international exposure. They're getting some of their revenue from international markets. And so the question is, is can you get international exposure through owning U.S. companies? Yeah, and this is a this is a, a pretty common question we get is, hey, you know, Apple sells iPhones overseas, right? And so we see that, you know, the sources of revenue for the U.S. markets, about 40% of those revenues do come from um, outside the U.S., a lot of those mega cap names, the trillion dollar clubs that we mentioned earlier, they're multinationals. They're doing business everywhere. Um, but also, this is interesting because you can invert this, uh, which means looking at European equities, um, they get about a, a quarter of their revenue from U.S. markets. Uh, Japan gets about 16% of its revenues from the U.S. Um, and you look at some of the companies, Nintendo, BP, um, you know, some more companies, they're major players in the U.S. Um, and so you, you can also argue that if you don't invest in international, you are missing segments of the U.S. markets, right? Because international companies get revenues from the U.S. as well. So um, that, that's an interesting kind of flip on that question is, you know, if you, uh, if you believe it's um, you get revenues from other com- countries, to leave out international means you're leaving out some of the U.S. as well. So another case for diversification. Uh, but here's a question for you. Um, you know, we've seen correlations between the U.S. stock and international stocks um, converge a little bit over, you know, the last decade or two when they didn't used to behave quite in the same way as they are today. We've seen on occasion some of the di- divergence with bonds, but in general, the correlations have in general held for bonds. Um, why is that? Why have those correlations shifted the way this way with the international markets? Yeah, I mean, you have to look at assets. I mean, look at stocks and bonds. Uh, historically, they have been negatively correlated, which just means, you know, if if um, if if bonds or if stocks are down, bonds are typically up. Well, in 2022, stocks were down, and oh, guess what? Bonds were down as well. It was a very unusual year. So there's always changes 
there's not a um, exact playbook in the stock market. So it's it's certainly um, true that um, you know the U.S. and international stocks um, do share you know some of the same businesses and they follow some of the the same issues, um, stimulus, you know, interest rates and things like that from a macroeconomic standpoint. Um, and economies have become more intertwined. I mean, as markets have become increasingly uh, connected, it's not surprising that we see some correlation convergence. But just because stocks in the U.S. and, the, and outside of the U.S., international, are moving in the same direction, it doesn't mean that the magnitude of those movements is the same. So an investor would have gotten very different results um, you know, back in that lost decade that we talked about. So 2000 to 2009, you know, U.S. stocks, um, large stocks lost money. But if you had been invested in stocks outside the U.S., you would have made pretty good money during mm -hmm. that time frame, as well as small stocks. So just looking back at some of the history, it's something that we have as advisors as we study history. It doesn't mean, you know, it always repeats itself, but it also gives you some perspective on, things to do and things not to do. So, um, you know, we do believe that there is um, strategic value in owning international stocks. Yeah, and really just to wrap up the article, the main point is to cast as broad of a net as possible, and that's what diversification is. It means, hey, we want to be in the U.S. We think there's a lot of good value there, but also we have no idea what thousands of different combinations of results are going to impact these, these companies. And so, you know, with you know, politics or with, um, you know, different, um, you know, wars or different pandemics or how these affect these specific companies. We really want to say, hey, we want some of those, but also we want some in Japan. We want some in emerging markets. We want some in, you know, companies you've never heard of that are investing in clean energy. Um, you know, there, there's so many different factors that go into how companies perform. And quite frankly, no one knows what's going to happen. And so that's why we want to be broadly diversified. Yeah, and it helps um, <clears throat> in times of turmoil to be diversified. We, we've seen that t typically with bonds. And and uh, again, if you go back and look, just look at history a little bit, it's it doesn't work out exactly like this. But the the decade of the, the 70s, um, international outperformed. In the 80s, U.S. outperformed. And in the 90s, U.S. outperformed. In the 2000s, international. I mean, so... They don't work exactly like that, but there are long periods of time that international trounces the U.S., and you want to make sure you have a little bit of that in the portfolio um, as, you're, as you're building wealth or you're in retirement pulling income out. You, you need to have some diversification. It's a, it's a safer way. It historically has reduced the volatility. So good discussion there, and uh, we're going to close out here with the prescription of the week. Yeah, and this is looking at um, saving for education. It's a really good question we get. Um, and it's, it's essentially saying, you know, between the three main types of accounts today that people use, 529 plans, custodial accounts, or brokerage accounts, um, you know, how should we save for education? ESAs are also in there as well. Uh, and this, this question really just depends on, um, from our standpoint, how confident you are that your child or grandchild will use those funds for education. If you are certain that they will. Maybe they're one year out, two years out. Maybe they're just born, but you're saying, hey, they will go and use this education. Then having a fund that is specifically designated for education is fine. And you can get some tax breaks typically through the state. If you're unsure or uncertain, we would honestly encourage you to consider doing a brokerage account or some more flexible account 
so that if they don't go to college or don't go to um, use these funds, it can be used for a wedding or a house fund for them or a car or anything else for them. Uh, it's not locked up in educational yeah. you know, accounts. Yeah, you have a lot of flexibility. I, I had a, uh, an email from a client this week and uh, they were asking me, um, hey, what, my oldest is, um, uh, is, is moving out. And um, I didn't get into a lot of detail with them, but it didn't sound like they were, um, it was a super you know, good situation. And they were like, Hey, this account that we set up for him, can he access it? And they can't cause it's a brokerage account in the parent's name. Now we labeled it for the child. You said they cannot, they cannot. Yeah. Right. right. Yeah. They cannot access it. So there was a concern that, that, um, the 18 year old would be able to call up and, and get the money and, and go do what they wanted to with it. And, and so control is a piece of it as well. So there's a lot of different uh, options. You know, the 529, the ESA are really good for education savings account are good for college. There's a custodial account, um, which has some small benefits and then the brokerage account. So it really depends on what the parents are trying to accomplish. Yeah. Great question. Yeah. That's a good, good prescription. Um, and this has been this week's edition of MoneyMD. Tune in next week on MoneyMD.net to hear more prescriptions for your financial health. Check out our website, moneymd.net. Send us your questions or give us a call here at Richard Young Associates, 706-739-0725. Thanks for listening. Have a great weekend. Material in this program is intended for general information only and should not be taken as specific investment tax or legal advice. None of the information contained in this broadcast is intended by the host to be a solicitation for the purchase or sale of any security. All hosts are representatives of Richard Young Associates and registered investment advisor.